And so bite scale, atoms don't, but you're not trying to scale people. You're trying to scale the things around people so that you empower them to do the most meaningful, client-centric, change-oriented work. And then everything else you try to push to some level of automation. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Anthony Coppedge is leading agile transformation for digital sales at IBM. He's an expert in coaching sales and marketing teams on implementing an agile mindset, and he's taught leaders, managers, and teams how to manage the tension between planned and unplanned work so they can deliver value at scale. On this episode, Anthony shares his insights into change management at scale, the value of being agile rather than doing agile, and how teams can leverage agile thinking to become faster, more profitable, and more customer-centric. So I'm actually going to start today off by quoting you back to yourself, which is, I think, a great way to, to start an interview, right? So something you've said before that I love is that you like to give away a lot of stuff for free. And I actually saw you do this, I think, last week. You released your latest framework on Twitter. And I'm sure through other channels, you said you like to do this because you want to be hired for not for what you know, but for how you came to know it. So I'm curious if you can unpack that a little and then would love to know what you say to folks who believe that by keeping certain knowledge under wraps, it gives them more power or brings them more success. For me, Ben, giving away what you know is the best way to pay it forward. Always. So if I give away what I know and I help you, then you'll help yourself, but you're probably going to end up helping someone else. And so it just keeps going on and on. I am hired for the way I know what I know. So from a monetization standpoint, I don't really worry too much about giving things away. Uh, I'm not trying to hold all the idea capital, right? I think that ideas are easy. It's the execution that's hard. I love that. And you right bang on, right? It's the, the ideas are are the easy part and the execution is the challenging part. Let's use last week's as an example. Can you explain a little bit about this new framework that you released? Sure. It, it's um, what we're talking about is I call the retrospective radar. And like other th- good ideas, it came from good ideas. I'm a big fan of the circles of control, influence and concern that was uh, originated by Stephen Covey. And then I found a guy named Pat Kua who created what's called Starfish for Retrospectives. And before I get a little too geeky on this, let me just point out that in the business context in which I work, helping people understand how they can take what's in their sphere of control, what they can influence, and what they can be concerned about is just a pragmatic way to not feel so burdened by the enormity of a job or life or whatever's going on. It's You bite-size it. It has very little to do with the Agile Manifesto or uh, or even the software development world from which it came. It's really about how do you get better business outcomes and how do you change the culture of, an, of a team and then an organization. And so the retrospective radar came about because I was teaching how to have circles of control, influence, and concern using Covey's model. And I, when I found out about the starfish for retrospectives, where a retrospective is a, a team coming together to discover what worked, what didn't, and how they get better together, the rising tide lifts all boats or floats all boats kind of thinking. And so when I found it, I was in a place where we were trying to, at scale, at IBM, 
take all of the learning and insights that happen with dozens and dozens of teams and then hundreds of employees and act on that. And so we started in, you know, like anything, Angela, we started with like a, a minimum viable product, a, a, some basic but viable solution, which was Excel, because Excel runs the world. And so I was looking for ways to take their verbatim feedback and act on it. And, and even though we have Watson natural language processor at IBM, I still couldn't get the level of actionability at scale to make that realistic. So while we had taught people how to think differently, the execution of that at scale was challenging. So I was using a tool called Mural, which is online interactive whiteboarding and collaboration. So people were there and I overlaid Pat Kua's Starfish onto Stephen Covey's Circles of Control, Influence, Concern. And what I came up with was a way to both action for the actual person, the, the person doing the work, the team member, to prioritize their actions for the upcoming week and provide a feedback for their direct manager and our senior leaders above them. And this was the game changer because now we could we had qualified information, but we could quantify that qualified feedback. So you had a way to put a number to an emotion, a number to a sentiment, a number to a keyword frequency or whatever. And we still use Watson natural language processing, but what we're trying to do is make it accessible so that the managers can say, we're doing this, here's how things are going, you're giving us feedback, here's where your feedback is in the stage. We're either accepting it, thank you for it, it's awesome, or hey, we're working on that, it's in progress, or hey, we've already finished that, it was a great idea, we solved that for you. Or hey, there's a bigger thing. If we solve that, it breaks nine others. So we're probably not going to do that right now, but we've heard what you said. It's it's a little more complex than the thing you're bringing to us or some other set of answers. And so by codifying that, we then had a way to have feedback actually lead to change from the individual person on a line-by-line level, but through our leadership in a visual, calculatable way. So now feedback leads to change in a very dynamic way that does scale. And that was what I was giving away. So that's a very long answer to your short question, but I'm giving away the thinking that went into that because that's valuable for anybody in Agile. And I didn't felt it was right for me to hoard that. I I want to give that away because that's just going to benefit people. We very often have the ability to organize and orchestrate work, but feedback is really how you adjust strategy, right? And if we don't give people a mechanism to do that, usually people feel like, well, feedback really doesn't lead to change, so why bother giving it? I'll just go do my job. But you can really change things when you empower the lowest person in the organization to have critical thinking authority And then you begin to change the the microculture of that team, which much like tea, a bunch of microcultures start changing and then now the big cultures changed. And that's how you create culture shift, right? So, but you have to act on their feedback. You have to value what they're seeing and saying, and you have to show them we hear you and we're doing something because we hear you. That is fantastic. And I think everyone should check out your framework for sure. When you showed it to me in Mural, it was pretty mind-blowing, and it's definitely going to be impactful. We've referenced Agile uh, a couple times, so obviously that's your specialty. That's what you've been brought on to do at IBM is to, to move their entire sales function into Agile, essentially. So for those listening, I guess this is sort of a running joke since the start of Agile, which is, does anyone really know what it is? Can anyone clearly define it? Uh, so I'm going to challenge you. Uh, can you give me a very quick elevator pitch on what Agile is? 
20 years later, Ben, the values and principles of Agile have been applied to just about every area of business, and that does include sales and marketing. But Agile is, in its simplest of terms, just a way of focusing on people over process, on focusing on outcomes over outputs, and focusing on small experiments over big bets. If you do that, chances are you're Agile. And when you talk about doing Agile, just to, to clarify, because I think we talked about this more, but you don't mean Agile TM. I think you said big A Agile. You mean just being Agile as like having, as in... Lowercase. Lowercase, having an Agile mentality efficiently, all that good stuff. Nimble, quick, adaptive, reflexive, responsive, right? All those things. And what we're trying to build is an anti-fragile organization. Because most organizations, if, if something isn't followed, something breaks. It's like taking a wine glass and throwing it on the ground. It shatters, right? Because it's fragile. But an organization that's anti-fragile actually would be like a wine glass that if I threw it at the ground, it would bounce up and be stronger than when I threw it down. It would be resilient and anti-fragile. That's what we're trying to build. Agility, lowercase a, helps us build an anti-fragile organization. I feel like it's confusing having been, now we're talking fragile and agile and they're, uh, they sound too close <laughs> to each other. No, that, that's great. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's excellent. It is a really good analogy. So I completely get it. So in terms of the way we all collaborate, maybe even taking into account how things have shifted this year, what are your thoughts on sort of the, the future of work and agile's involvement in that? Agile may continue to be the present of work that becomes the future of work for those not yet doing it, but Agile is the present of work. I mean, when the fastest growing and largest organizations the world has ever seen, all of them are Agile in there and how they operate, right? So this is because bytes scale and atoms don't, right? Okay, yeah. So it's very easy to spin up more servers. It's very easy to spin up more instances. It's very easy to scale software and storage, it's very hard to scale people. Right. <laughs> people don't scale very well, right? In fact, I would say people just don't scale, period. At all, yeah. Yeah, James Clear has a really great, great quote in one of my favorite books, which is Atomic Habits. He says, we do not rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. And while Agile is about interactions with people over processes, right? Systems are the ways you do things, uh, repeatability, right? Scalability, if you're doing it um, at scale. And so I really like that because I'm not trying to have the person be the answer for everything. And I mentioned it earlier, but if you push control all the way down to the lowest, quote unquote, possible person in the organization, and if you would authorize them to make the necessary changes and apply critical thinking, that's where you're going to find the benefit of people, right? You need people to think it through, people to make those decisions. And you don't want the uh, manager making all the decisions. You have people doing the work closest to it to make the decisions. So right. you push control down. And then the other thing you do is anytime you have a situation where you don't need people doing that, any system or process you have that doesn't require critical thinking skills, it just needs to get done, right. you automate, right? And so Byte scale, atoms don't, but you're not trying to scale people. You're trying to scale the things around people so that you empower them to do the most meaningful, client-centric, change-oriented work. And then everything else, you try to push to some level of automation. You know, we, it, it, in agile sales, we talk about free the seller. We want to free them from the administrative burdens so that they can do the one thing they're, they're really paid to do, which is go build those relationships and show our clients and prospects the way we can help them really accelerate the growth and effectiveness of their business. Oh, by the way, we're probably going to sell something. 
right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's everyone's dream, right? It's to do the job that they were actually hired to do. You know what I mean? Like I think for sales or customer success managers or product managers or anyone, no one wants to be bogged down in admin work or bits and pieces of things that they just need to do that could easily be automated. So looking at it as a way to free people to just do the thing that they actually are best at and want to do will provide that kind of max minimum input for maximum output kind of situation and be better for the person and the company and, and all that good stuff. Better than maximum output is maximum outcome. Mm. So when you think about Agile, Agile really doesn't want more activity. We want better results. Right. So I had a young sales rep talk to me and said, you know, I really figured out how to do my, my calls every week. I make all these calls. And he was talking about the number of calls. There's hundreds of calls. And I said, great. How many leads did you generate from all those calls? He's like, well, none yet, but I, but I made a lot of calls. I'm like, you know, we don't actually pay you to make calls. Right. What we pay you to do is figure out what's working and what's not so that you have the authority to pivot to do the thing that makes the most sense, right? Yeah. I remember Steve Jobs' quote of, we don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people to tell us what to do, right? And, and I think I, what I like about Agile is it's a place where when you push that control all the way down and when you flip that pyramid upside down and it's servant leadership, now you have a situation where the people closest to the work are also closest to the opportunity. They're the ones that should be telling us what they need. And then our job is to go remove the impediments and skill them up to get to what they need so they can benefit our clients, right? And if you think, go back to that, like 20th century, Milton Friedman, and um, like in like 1970 or whatever, said that the only reason for a company to exist is to make a profit. And that's like shareholder centric, right? Well, the world changed and it's continuing to change at a pace that people can't even really keep up with. But in that change became something very important, client centricity. So if I deliver greater value to more clients, I make the profits. Profits then are the byproduct of doing a, something exceptionally well consistently. And if you're trying to really grow it and ramp it at scale. But the point is, is that we're not trying to do more things and get more outputs. We actually would say, I did less things, but I got better results from it, right? It's minimize the effort, increase, maximize the outcome, not the output. I love that. Calling me out for the customer success uh, lingo. We're always focused on outcomes, and here I'm talking about output. <laughs> Can you give us an example just to sort of drill down into how this could manifest for someone on the front lines, like an AE pre uh, an accounting executive pre Anthony at IBM versus that same AE post Anthony at IBM so that we really understand what this looks like from, from that perspective. Yeah. So one of the things I think people know is that there are systems and processes in every organization, which are just painful, right? It's like, well, we got to do that legacy systems, traditional process, whatever that is. Every organization has that. Then the larger you are, the more of them you have. Um, so one of the things we, we want to always think about is how do we ask the question, why and why not, right? Well, why are we doing that? Well, we've always done it that way. But why have we always done it that way? Because we're looking for this thing. Well, why would we not look at it this way? No one's ever looked at it that way. So by having the discussion, you start uncovering and unpacking the root cause rather than the symptom. You know, when people blindly move forward and, uh, well, that's just what I have to do and it's not questioned, you can never have innovation in that, right? You can have compliance, but you'll, you'll really never innovate and you probably will never improve either. So what you're looking at is a way to think differently and to empower people is to change the culture. So we can question things. 
and not be just complaining. Yeah. Because that's what happens in most organizations. Well, you know, if we didn't have to go into this system and export to Excel before we go to that system, it'd be a lot better. Everybody knows that. That's not new information. Yet everybody keeps complaining about the thing that's not working and nothing ever really changes. Why? Because there's no data around that. There's no cost associated with it. There's no understanding of the impact assessment. And so what I have people do is an impact assessment and a cost justification. So when I say, hey, how many uh, people hours does it take per week to do this manual thing you're talking about of from one system, export to Excel, Excel, go to another system? Right. Well, that's four hours per person per week times X number of people. Suddenly we've got, oh, I've just spent $4 million. I didn't realize it was that kind of pain, right? It was always a complaint. But now you realize there's a real, oh my gosh, that cost me. That's like every day that costs our company. Right. And it's an opportunity cost in two ways. There's the hard cost of you're just paying people to do stuff that really needs to not be done or done very differently. But you're also then not doing the thing they should be doing, right? So it's a double whammy. So you're, you have no up, upside for opportunity. It's just pure downside. And in Agile, we talk about only two ways to improve, Ben. There's only two ways to improve. You either optimize the upside and get more effective and more efficient, or you reduce the waste and decrease the downside. That's it. You don't have more options to get better. Those are your two. So when you can do both, when I can reduce that downside and then free people up to go do the thing and optimize the upside and get better at that as well, I mean, that's an exponential win. And it's not a complaint. So the before and after is really about how do you not just think differently and move faster and work in teams, but how do you bubble up and create those feedback loops, i.e. the retrospective radar and tools like it to say, how do we act on the feedback in a meaningful, data-centric, operational way to represent the pain and opportunity so that our leaders understand that there's an impact of that. It's, it's not just a cost of doing business. It's not just BAU, business as usual. There's actually harm. And what if we changed? right? So then you have a way to justify the cost to go, well, what would it cost to change? Probably a lot less than it currently costs you to keep doing it in a poor way and limit upside. Makes a ton of sense uh, to me. And to get even into uh, even more of a microcosm of this, are there any ways that this sort of mentality pervades or seeps into your personal life? So my wife, uh, Babs, is one of the most fun and amazing and wise and people that I know. She's got this kind of interesting yin and yang about her. She's like super fun and spontaneous, Enneagram 7 for those out there in the Enneagram world, mm. um, and all the good that goes with that. But she's also got this very deep reservoir and is remarkable at asking brilliant questions. And so often when I get going and think in my own life, she, I will start explaining something like this in detail, like I do this. I'm very verbose, as you can tell. And she would say to me often, don't build the watch, just tell me the time. Yeah. And so I would have to slow down and go, what's the thing I'm trying to get to? Because I am trying to create those improvements, right? But, I'm, but if I'm just complaining, or I'm just saying, oh, I wish was, well, she's like, well, so what's the thing? She's really good at asking great questions. And I've tried to learn from that because I think that's what helps me in the, in the work that I do that's coaching related. A really great coach doesn't give hardly any answers. They pretty much just ask great questions and they help you ask better questions. Right. And that's one of my things I want to always do. So, yeah, in my personal life, it shows up all the time. I was reading, um, we're using Whole30 as our, as our flavor of how we do food and how we eat and how we manage ourselves. Um, and so Melissa Urban wrote this amazing thing uh, about how the Whole30 works and it's 30 days and it's not a diet. and It's just fantastic. 
But what was fascinating is she wrote a book that basically describes what happens when you eat, this is what actually happens in your body. So it's a, it's a scientific explanation of how things work. And as a result of that, there's a way for us to think about it. And as I'm reading this book in these 30 days, she's really talking about an agile mindset. I don't think there's anything in there that says agile, and I'm not sure she's studied it, but the principles are loud and clear. And I love that. So I pointed that out to my wife and she's like, well, of course you see something agile in it. So yeah, that's that shows up in my life because I can't not think this way. And in fact, you know, Agile was invented 20 years ago, 2001. And before that, it was very slow, very large, complex projects just took forever to get done. I mean, if you go back to like Windows 95, when was the next release? Windows 98. <laughs> Windows 98, as in 1998, three years later, right? Uh, and now my phone sends me updates on my apps um, every day. I get new updates. I don't even think about it. And I'm constantly getting version 2.4.7. whatever. It's just incrementally better. That's Agile, right? Agile literally has changed how we, how things function um, on the on our application side, on the ecosystem side of the app channels and how all that exists, software itself, your operating system that you use, online internet development, the whole thing is Agile. So it's everywhere. It's pervasive but no one really sees it, right? It's like, it just happens and they just think it works that way, but there is an underlying. And when you look at the S&P 500, for example, I was just seeing this recently that the top five companies in the S&P 500, all tech companies, all agile, have greater market capitalization than the entire European stock market combined, right? Why? Because Byte scale and atoms don't. And they figured that out and they've now grown faster and larger than any organization in the history of the planet. That's remarkable. It's very remarkable and uh, not easy for companies that are, you know, early stage focused on growth. What do you advise for a company like Catalyst where, you know, we don't have potentially, you know, a ton of horrible processes in place that are that are weighing us down, but we want to prevent building those poor processes in the first place. We want everything to be great from the get go. Are there sort of like periodic audits that you recommend companies do, or is it something that should just happen all the time? What advice would you give around process building to a company that um, maybe isn't, you know, a thousand people or, or five people, but, you know, in that 100 to 250 to 200 people kind of size and want to make sure that they're building and growing efficiently? Well, it would work for eight, right? It would work for 250. It would work for 25,000. It would work for a quarter million because, when you start thinking differently, you figure out what are the things that are causing those issues and what are your opportunities? I mean, ultimately, we're trying to change. Our company exists to do something of some value for others, right? We exist not so that we make a profit. We exist so that we provide a unique value to X, Y, and Z. Those are our clients, right? So we're client-centric. And in every organization, you're going to have something that could always get better, but you've got to be smart about what needs to get better first, right? So you don't want to do the thing that's going to get you 2% better and stop. You do want to do the thing that's going to get you 2% better per week and never stop, right? So one of the things I talk to in marketing and sales for with Agile, you know, is I really think the best way to think about each week is we iterate experiment, learn, measure, and repeat is what can we identify that we can share and learn across teams, across the organization that if we all learn from that, we would be 1% better in that area, right? And that just sounds like, man, that doesn't really move the needle, Anthony. But if you took a two-week vacation and you did this for 50 weeks in a row, even at just 1% better, 
you're 50% better in that area in a year. Of course. Now, I don't know a CFO on the planet who wouldn't be thrilled to see a 50% improvement in any area, right? That's a, that's actually a substantial amount of improvement. But you don't look at it as, I've got a quota of 50%, it's I have the opportunity. And very much, I think, that my best analogy that I can give you is it's like GPS. GPS uses real-time data of all the cell phones around it and the, the satellite imaging, and it says, hey, what's the best way to get to the destination, not what's the best route? So it dynamically generates the route based on the variables of uh, you're on I-35 East and you're driving north. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, it's saying you should exit here and go around. Yeah. Well, how does it know that? Well, there's hundreds of phones up ahead that went from 60 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour. They can tell that and they go, that's probably an accident or construction. And so we're going to route you around it. So rather than tell people, here's the route to get to the destination, we say, here's the destination, here's the deadline. Please be at this destination in this way at this time. And then you figure out the best way to get there. Because I guarantee if you give people that, they will find the most efficient routes. Definitely. <laughs> because it benefits them to find the most efficient. And it's probably going to be better than what you have predicted and planned for. And so we often discover these beautiful things. My wife and I took a, a trip uh, where we, we went up to the Northeast and drove uh, through three different states to go look at the changing in the leaves. And you know, one of the coolest things about that was I put a destination in the GPS, but as we went, we would notice like, hey, there's like this lake to the right. So we just took the exit. And we found the most amazing experiences on that trip were when we took the exit and said, hey, let's go look at that. We knew we still were going to get to our destination, but we were less concerned with the route. We were more concerned with the experience right. and what we gained from that. And it was immense value. We, we discovered things that never would have been on our radar. We would have never found them. But the value of that trip went up exponentially, not because we had pre-planned routes, but because we had pre-planned destinations and other flexibility to get there. I love that. There's my analogy. That is a great analogy, and it reminds me of a horrifyingly embarrassing memory when I was driving with my partner and some friends through Vermont, and we were like, hey, let's go to the Ben & Jerry's factory, right? We love ice cream. So I quickly plug it into the map. We drive for a while, and we get to this area, and we're like, this doesn't look right. But I'm like, no, 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 it's here. I've been following the map. We're good. So we, we go down, and there's like, it just doesn't look quite right. And there's a receptionist there, and we're like, hi, we're here for the tour. And she's, she just gave us the weirdest look. And, and apparently we'd gone to the manufacturing plant or something or straight into the distribution center. <laughs> their warehouse. Yeah, it was basically their warehouse. There was like <laughs> one cow in front of the entrance. It did not look fun or entertaining. And there was like one other car in the parking lot. And yeah, it was just the wrong destination. And uh, they've never let me forget the, that error. But there's an analogy for the importance of knowing what uh, destination to be aiming for, making sure it's the right one. Data-driven. Validate before you go, right? <laughs> or validate as you go at the very least. One of the ways client success is, is unique is that we focus on saying no to certain customers, right? If we don't think we'll be able to accomplish what they want to accomplish, um, or you know, we'll, we won't sell them in the first place, or if they do get sold to and then we realize after that in our kickoff meeting that we can't do what they need us to do, we're going to go back to sales and we're going to figure out what's going on. And that's a relatively new mentality uh, in business in general is being willing to say no to, to revenue and that sort of thing. Because if you don't know that you can get them there and accomplish what they want to accomplish. It's a bad start to the journey. So specifically in your case, I wanted to ask 
you know, regarding IBM, you mentioned that you have 5,000 people that you're managing this transformation for. How did you, like, I would be terrified to try to make that decision about, can I do this? Will I be effective in this role? Will I be able to change this massive organization? So how do you go about making that decision? Um, Because you're very customer centric. So I can't think that you have just, you know, on a whim and like, sure, I'll come in and change the way that your 5,000 person sales team does what they do. So for me, I just lead with an agile mindset. Um, I don't assume that it's going to work because I'm implementing or I'm teaching or training or coaching. I know I don't know. And so I actually had some reps relatively early on, four or five months into this. One of them got the guts to come over and talk to me. And she, and she said, um, the other reps won't talk to you about this, but they just want, why don't you just tell us what to do? And I said, because I would be precisely wrong. And I would rather you be roughly right and then be roughly right a little bit better next week and then roughly right a little bit better next week because I don't do your job. I don't pretend to know. I know how to help you think about it. I know how to help you organize. I know how to create system process, technology. I know how to do all those things. But ultimately, it's a choice, right? To be a professional seller today means that you have to choose to think about how to be data-driven as a seller. And then that means you have to be willing to look beyond your sales role to say, what's part of that customer journey can I influence or give feedback on so we don't get poor leads or that we don't have the wrong qualification process? And then I got to be able to have the right conversation. So I knew there's always opportunity there. I just didn't know how it was going to play out. And, and I'd never been in IBM before. So learning IBM is, you know, it's a ginormous organization. That was a year right there, right? But I just reminded people frequently and loud, loudly uh, from managers, senior leaders, that I'm not there to make them do anything. I'm there to help them discover what they could do differently at scale and with velocity for better outcomes. So I'm not very prescriptive, Ben. I don't tell people what to do very often. There's very few things. There's like five things total, I think, that when I thought about this and I was talking to, uh, the other day, that I think there's like five things I could unquote require total. It's because descriptive and aspirational through pragmatic principles and practices is how I work. So our marketing sales, whatever, they know what they need to do. They know the solutions. They know our business partners. They know the client need. They, they are the ones in the trenches. Why would I pretend to, to tell them how to do that? That would not make sense. My biggest is to create the psychological safety and show them that their feedback matters and that if they'll be willing to pivot and change the way they work and become data-driven and more empathetic in their work, that we're going to get better outcomes for the benefit of our clients, and that will give us better outcomes for the organization. So instead of inspecting the rep's work, we want to understand how do we help them. Instead of telling them what to do, we tell them what they need us to do so that we can give them the support and the resources they need to deliver that value to our clients at scale. And instead of command and control, we learn and adapt. So for me, I never had to worry about how will I go in and do this? Because it wasn't about doing anything. It was about leading and aspiring and giving direction and purpose. And when I've done that, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see you get different feedback from people. But I think overall, we've seen it's been remarkable. It also just so happens that we started our Agile transformation six months before the pandemic. And we were very much co-located, everybody sitting around the same tables in the same cube farms, like they were used to being a really tight knit group of people and suddenly work from home. Well, Agile doesn't care. So we had built the cadences, the discipline, the practices, the communication, the visibility around our work and workflow to where when it came to work from home, it was a pivot. It wasn't a a whole like, oh my gosh, what do we do? And in fact, I remember... uh, 
senior leaders saying, like, we can't believe how important Agile has been. We knew it was important. We had no idea. It was a game changer for us because it let us just kind of just hit the, put a comma in a sentence and not have to start a new paragraph and figure out how to work. It was a game changer. I can imagine. It's such a drastic change, especially at such a large organization like that. And I think you hit the nail on the head speaking about the priority of creating psychological safety. It's probably the best thing that any manager can do for their team. And I think, you know, speaking about that rep that came to you, that to me is reflective of a culture where people weren't previously rewarded for, you know, voicing their concerns and trying to change how things are being done. So, you know, putting that process into place and then rewarding and facilitating that continual kind of reverse feedback loop is critically important. Let me speak to that if I could, because they were given, and I saw this so many times, where they have good relationships with their managers. So it's not like they couldn't go talk to somebody. It's that in the organization, we had not built a process and a structure that said, here's how you take feedback and learn from it qualitatively with a quantitative mindset. You can measure that feedback, right, and understand that feedback at scale. That's what we created that didn't exist. So psychological safety can exist in any organization to some level, but the ability to affect change goes beyond the psychological safety. Now you have to have to operationalize it, right? One of the most powerful parenting things I learned uh, many years into parenting, we have four kiddos and, um, and the oldest is now, you know, graduating high school this year. So you're almost free. I'm all, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, we've got friendships with our kids now, so it's really neat, but it's the pivot for me was coming from a, a command and control family myself. It's all I knew. And so do as you're told, don't question, get it done. If I, if I tell you, it, you know, the only acceptable answer is yes, sir. Right. And it was terrible. It was patriarchal. And terrible. so for me, I had to unlearn that not that I didn't uh, deserve some respect or whatever, but I also needed to show them that respect. And so one of the things we, we did was when we pivoted, we started saying, we're giving them choices for critical thinking development. Once we made that pivot, it was huge because before it was, you needed to clean your room and you needed to do this, you know, or else there was a punishment. And we changed that to say, hey, this is when your room's got to be cleaned by. Here's the destination, time and destination. You know the level to which we accept clean. So however you want to do that and whenever you want to do that, up to you. But by this time and day, if you don't choose to clean your room, totally your choice, but you will not have access to the new Wi-Fi password next week. So up to you. If you'd like to not clean your room, no problem. That is entirely a choice. You just won't have Wi-Fi. So that was the thing of giving them choices. This is how the real world works, right? There are consequences for choices, but you get to make the choice. And, and by giving them those critical thinking skills of why would I make that decision? Well, that's my kids, but it applies in job too, right? I want to give them every opportunity to succeed, but it is their choice. Mm-hmm. It's a great way of looking at it. And and even earlier, you're... A process around just kind of questioning the importance of questioning practices remind me of I don't know if it's when kids are five or or something but the why stage when all they do is ask why continuously until you just run out of answers and it's you just end up sort of because yeah they have way more than the five whys they got like the yeah. five hundred whys like everything's why I love that yeah. we need to get uh, some five year olds in to run some meetings at some of these uh, tech companies to get the real change and innovation going. <laughs> Can you imagine having to answer to that? And what's beautiful about that is I do like the five whys. Because if by the time you get to the, usually the third one, by the time you get to the fifth one, yeah. you're probably at the root thing. And now you have a hard choice to make. But welcome to leadership. 
Now, that's the whole point, right, is to inspire people to something that's just beyond what they can think, ask, or imagine, but then also to show them what's possible to get beyond where they can think, ask, or imagine. And you have to create constraints to release people from constrained thinking. One of my favorite, no, but I love that. And I was just talking about this with my partner because he's a photographer. And if he's given carte blanche, he will, he can't be creative. He, he gets lost in a million tangents, can't put anything together. But you just give him a rough box and he'll come up with the most shocking, incredible stuff. And so I, I think the same thing, creative, non-creative, when people have that framework or that box, with enough flexibility, that's where the magic happens. Correct. So I love that. That got me excited. As we go towards the end, I'm curious what you think. One thing that's awesome about the tech community in general that we can celebrate and look forward to building on in 2021. And one thing that you think we all just kind of need to leave behind in the dumpster fire of 2020. <laughs> uh, which seems to be continuing into 2021 in, in some ways, but uh, you know, people still have choice, right? We always have that. I think the tech community is full of some of the most creative, intelligent, and generous people I've ever met. And it's compacted into kind of a shiny object syndrome playland, where the result is that innovation, not merely optimization, is rampant and pragmatism is an afterthought. So I talked about Babs earlier, my wife. Well, she's taught me that there's two types of intentionality, Ben. The intentionality to do something and the intentionality not to do something. And it's the latter that I think in the tech community we miss. We do something because we can all the time. And sometimes we don't ask if we should. So we create and leverage technology to do things, but we don't often stop and consider the constraints we just talked about, those constraints we should build in to help us be both intentional with what we don't want to do in tech as well as what we do want it to do. Both are valuable. And so unlimited technology is like a sharpened boomerang, right? It will fly with super efficiency on the way out. But it also flies that way on the way back to your hand where it's going to slice your hand off, right? So we often forget that as we throw our technology out into the world, we need to be intentional. Just because we can doesn't often mean that we should. I think it's a, a great, great piece of advice to, to bear in mind. We covered a lot today. Are there any final comments, pieces of advice, words of wisdom you'd like to, uh, you'd like to add? Always ask why. If someone brings an agile framework to you, don't assume it's going to work for you. Agile is a way of being. It's a way to believe. It's not a thing to do. If you're doing Agile, it's probably not going to work. But if you're being Agile, you have every chance of having remarkable, consistent, scalable success for where success is the things that matter most and are most important to moving the mission and, and purpose forward of your organization. And then usually, if you're in the right spot doing the kind of work that makes a difference, when you do that kind of work, oh, you're more fulfilled. So uh, there's a win-win-win here that's possible. And and the big A Agile you know, community has got lots of things they'll, they'll try to sell you. But ultimately, do you want to work with others in meaningful ways to do better work faster, sooner for the benefit of your clients? Do you want to enjoy the process of getting there to the destination rather than following a plan? If so, Agile's probably for you. I admire people who can be profound on demand. So <laughs> thank you so much, Anthony. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I really appreciate you coming on today. So fun, Ben. This has been a blast. Next time we'll have to do a three hour Joe Rogan style. <laughs> no one wants to listen to me for three hours. No, you, sure. Me, not so much. Uh, fair enough. All right, Anthony, have a great rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. 
Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn, and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you.